you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, as we continue this evening series, Praying with Paul, Praying with Paul. It's been really good to do this, just studying, get, just getting this ready, this little sermons ready for each Sunday evening, seeing, seeing the emphasis that Paul had in prayer, the things that really concerned him. Somebody one time said, you can tell a man's soul by the way he prays, and you can take that too far, I know, but there's a lot of truth to that. And so listening to Paul's real concerns in prayer tells you how important certain things were. And one of those themes came, has come up in the first three prayers that we looked at. We looked at Romans 15, the very first one. We looked at Ephesians 1. We've looked at Ephesians 3. And they all three had a central theme. And that central theme comes up here also in Philippians. And so we're going to hear about his prayer. Hear his prayer in Philippians 1. Um, the first part of this, verses 3 through 8, we'll talk about because it's good, important background before we get to the prayer itself, which is verses 9. 11. So, out of reverence for God's word as it is read, please join me by standing and hear the word of the Lord. Philippians 1, 3-11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the, end, at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your holy word and also for Paul's, Paul's own yearning, his own heart being displayed here, which is a in some ways, in many ways, as an echo of your own heart. We ask you, Lord, that you would make us sensitive to your word. You would, as we prayed earlier in the song, revive thy work, O Lord. We pray that you would come and revive your work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we need to think through very quickly, just think through Paul's letter to the Philippians for a minute. It will help us to gather where we are in this letter, in these verses we just looked at. So if you've ever read Philippians, and I know the women's Bible study worked through Philippians last semester, and so some of you are fairly familiar with that. And then, then I know that the, the online, the Zoom women's Bible study is still doing Philippians. So you're familiar with some of this. Paul is uneasy about something going on inside this church. And though not everything in this letter is addressing his disquiet, yet the letter is primarily concerned with it. So let's kind of work through. You saw it in the prayer and all the things he says right before the prayer. You get a sense of it there. And then in the very next verses, verses 12 through 18, when he talks about people who are preaching the gospel, some from the right motives and some from the wrong motives, he is displaying his concern because notice how he, 
he addresses those who are preaching the gospel from the wrong motives as long as Jesus is, pro is proclaimed. That's his attitude. Instead of doubling his fist and damning them to hell, as long as Jesus is being proclaimed. You're already getting a sense of where this is headed. And then, when you get down to the end of chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, he goes on to motivate them. He uses military language, because most a lot of folks in Philippi were retired uh, Roman legionnaires, because it was a Roman colony. And so this language would have really resonated with them. He says there, when you get down to chapter 1, verse 27 and 28, he says um, that you may stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And that sentiment comes up again when you get to the very next chapter, the very first few verses. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing without, with selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, etc. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then as you kind of fast forward, you come towards the end of the letter in chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, and you go, aha, I see what this letter is about. And it has to do with two women, two sisters in the church, Yodia and Syntyche, where his troubles are laid out. He's concerned about them, and he urges them to agree with each other. And then he implores others to step in and help them to come to agree with each other. And so that's the overarching concern that Paul has in this letter and, and most things in this letter, not, not everything specifically, but most of this letter is flowing towards that direction. He's just emphasizing that aspect. And so knowing that this is the apostle's overall direction for the letter will help us to understand better what Paul is praying for in verses 9 through 11 and why he is praying for. And so first we're going to begin by evaluating Paul's affection. And that's verses 3 through 8, Paul's affection. And by the way, the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide. You can have some note space there. Paul's affection. Paul's affection for these believers is seen in his prayer. Notice his prayer, verse 4. He says, I pray for you with joy. It's a prayer of joy. When he thinks of them, he has joy. He's delighted because of their partnership, their koinonia with him in the gospel, in his gospel work. And he anticipates, verse 6, that what Jesus is doing and will do in them, he will complete it at that day. So then verse 7 and 8, Paul's affection for them. So you can hear his affection running all the way here. And you get to verse 7 and 8. And Paul's affection for them is warm through and through. Look at how he puts it in verse 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. You don't say that about just anybody. You know what I'm saying? I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's very warm, intimate language. I yearn for you all. Notice how he says this. He says, I yearn for you all. He doesn't say, I yearn for you two over there, or you two over there, or that group over there, or that group over there, or this one over here, or that one. He says, I yearn for you all. He has this, this large, expansive, encompassing uh, 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 affection for the whole congregation. It's the very thing that the apostle wants them to do. He wants them to have the same regard that he has for them, to have the same regard for one another. 
Let me say it again. The same regard he has for them is what he wants them to have for one another. And you get that when you go down and you see it in verse chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You can't miss it. The, the affection that Paul feels towards them, he wants to have, them to have the same affection through and through for one another, and you can't miss it. In fact, Paul will go one step further, and this is a little dangerous to do, but Paul does it. He takes young Pastor Timothy down, and when you get down to verse 19 and following, he takes young Pastor Timothy, or verse 14 or so, and he, excuse me, verse 19, he sets him up as a role model. This is what I'm talking about. Listen to what he says about Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy exhibits the very thing Paul just said in chapter 2, verse 3 and, uh, three and 4. He, I have no one else concerned that is, that is genuinely concerned with your welfare like Timothy is. And then he goes on to say, for they, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And notice the connection here. Timothy is an example of what Paul is, is, the affection Paul has and the affection Paul wants them to all have for one another. He's an example of that. And notice that as he says uh, earlier, back up in verse 3 and 4, that you're to, um, verse 3 and 4, sorry. You're to do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, looking out not only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Notice how he shifts that when he talks about Timothy. He says, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Having brothers and sisters, others' brothers and sisters' interests at heart is having Jesus' interests at heart. I hope you see the connection between what he's talking about in verse 3 and 4 and what he says about Timothy and these others who don't care about him, right? It's really intriguing. So this is, this is, Paul's, this is Paul's affection. He really feels deeply for them. He wants them to feel deeply toward one another. Later on in chapter 3, when he's kind of dealing with another subject, he says something that applies to this very point. He says in chapter 3, 17, Brothers, join me, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul's the example. He's, left, he's putting himself as an example, a role model of what he's wanting. I have this affection for you. I want you to have it with one another. He lifts up Timothy. He sets him up as an example of the very same thing. And then he says, now keep your eyes there, not on the people that you're having problems with, per se. Keep your eyes on these examples, because I want you to follow these examples. It's pretty important. It helps us then to get some, it gives us some of the motivation then behind his prayer when you start looking at verses 9 through 11. And so Paul's affection leads to Paul's prayer, a prayer that is primarily about charity, and it follows a course, and it comes to a conclusion. So that's the next three points. I tried to stay with C words, but 
but CH and CC doesn't work quite well. But there you go. So charity, verse 9. Let me read verse 9 again. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now comes, he comes to the content of his prayer. He even says, this is my prayer. And I want you to stop a moment. I mentioned this in a letter a few weeks back. As we're learning from Paul how to pray, I wonder if sometimes we shouldn't tell people what it is exactly we are praying about on their behalf. It's too easy for us to say, hey, Mike, I'm praying for you. Another thing to say, Mike, I'm praying for you, that, that Joanna quit beating or, or whatever, right? You know, she doesn't do that. But, you know, to be a little bit more specific, because, and then this is your real prayer for them. I wonder, because Paul keeps doing that. He keeps saying that over and over again. I pray for you, I pray for you, here's what I pray for you. But moving on, notice that the first and primary item Paul prays for is charity. It's love. He even uses the that word, that. Here's my prayer for you, that. So this is what I pray for. And so he himself has exhibited this love. We've already seen that when we looked at his affection. And, he clearly, and, and they clearly have been showing some love as well. They apparently have been showing loving character and actions in the past, as you can hear in Paul's language. Listen to his, his language. I pray for you that your love may abound more and more. So they're already loving or have been loving in the past, but notice that Paul's not content with the status quo. I want that love to increase. That's extremely important. Right? It's kind of like exercise. You've got to stretch the muscles, you know, you've got to strain the muscles for them to build back up and be stronger. I want this love that you have had, I want it to abound more and more. And what I find interesting is that that is in also in many of Paul's letters as well. There's a sense of the love you have, great. But now may it abound more and more. You heard it when Scott was reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. He says, your love is well known. Everybody, in, in, even up in Macedonia, knows about your love. But I want it to go on and be more. Or he says again in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 3 and verse 12, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Or again, over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. I mean, that's a big deal. So it's not just Christian love, and that's a, that's a top drawer issue with Paul, but love that is abounding. You even heard it when we read uh, for the call to worship from Romans 13. Oh, no, and anything except to what? Love one another, right? I'm telling you, you cannot get away from it. Loving our brothers and sisters is a top drawer issue in all the New Testament, from Romans to Revelation. It is a top drawer issue because it's a top drawer issue with our Lord Jesus Christ. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you that you also love one another by this, all the world will know that you are my disciples. It's a top drawer issue with our Lord Jesus. You know that because in John 17, he prays, Father, may they be one just as we are one so that the world will know that you've sent me. Father, may they be one so that the world will know that you love me and that you love them as you love me. It's a top drawer issue. 
And so, isn't it interesting? We've already, this is the fourth prayer of Paul's, and it's a central aspect of all four of these prayers. Loving brothers and sisters, one another. Extremely important. But I want you to notice that this is not just mere, this is not mere sentimentalism because of the next two traits there in verse 9. The next two traits in his prayer are traits that are meant to shepherd and guide this love. That you may abound more and more, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Those two traits shepherd and guide this love. Let's think about it for a minute. Knowledge. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge not talking about systematic theologies in the Westminster Confession of Faith. He's talking about knowledge in a different direction. Because he's talking about love. Think about it. It's actually coming to know each other's weaknesses better. Coming to know each other's strengths better. Coming to know each other's likes and dislikes better. You know, when Anne and I were... uh, I won't tell you the story about how I proposed to her because it's amazing. Not. But anyways... But, you know, it was all fireworks and romance. I mean, I was just like, woo, baby, right? But that was love. But now, then 20 years later, 30 years later, 43 years later, that love is not maybe so emotionally intense, per se. But I know her. I know what she likes and doesn't like. I know the language of love that she has, and she knows the language of love that I have. I'm the romantic, by the way, and so she could bring me the Valentines. And I'm like, woo, baby. Right? I know hers, and that's washing dishes, and man, woo, yeah. If I wash the dishes, there's, yeah, I'm just saying. Right? That comes from knowing. And that's what Paul's saying. May your love abound more and more with knowledge. You've got to know one another. And how do you come to know one another? You get involved with one another. In other words, Christian love is not uh, loving from a safe distance, but loving with familiarity. If you're at a safe distance, there's not much love going on there. When you're actually mixing it up with one another, familiar with one another, and, and maybe as close as you can get with one another, that's you, you start knowing each other and you can love. Does that make sense? And so there's the first trait he adds to this prayer about love, but then he goes on because the second trait is extremely important. They're all important. This is important in a different direction. It's a safety net for love. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and knowledge and all discernment. Now let me say this. When I hear, coming from the lips of Christians, Pastor, I have the gift of discernment. I get the willies in my tummy and I start worrying. I just want you to know, because usually that language, I don't know, anybody else heard that language before? Usually that language means Look, I have some superior knowledge and I'm coming to criticize you. Right? You've got some faults and I want to help love you into seeing your faults. Right? It's gut-wrenching when that happens. But Paul's not using that language in this way. The idea of discernment is the idea of um, the ability to make good and solid moral judgments on how to give love and how to show love and to know its limits. Okay, let me say it again. This discernment, with all discernment, is, how to, is knowing how to give love, how to show love, and its limits. So I can love someone 
But if I, and, and, and usually my affection would be there, you know, our affections would be there, but if I start funding their drug addiction, now I love them, I have the affection there, but there's, I've just crossed a boundary, do you understand? I'm funding their self-destruction, that's not very loving. Sure, it makes me feel good, if sure, in a sense that, I mean, I love you, I just can't see you, I just, and then I start funding that. No, no, there needs to be a limit, right? All discernment says, loving as far as you can, but knowing where the limits are. So I'm a very affectionate person. I mean, I'm literally a tangible, affectionate person, right? Somebody comes to me and they start bawling, and, they're, and I, my heart breaks for them, but I have to set up boundaries, right? I might hug them, but I'm going to make sure that there's boundaries here, and we're not going to go any further than this. That's the old discernment. And so I would say, when there's at times when there are um, when there are situations in a church where someone has crossed that boundary, and there's and there's um, there's a violation of trust. Probably more often than not, it was loving without discernment. Does that make sense? So notice Paul's prayer. It's really important. Would you love me abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment? You will know how to give love, show love, and its limits. Really important stuff. So then, this leads Paul to describe the course he wants this love to go, to take. Okay, this is the course he wants this love to take, and it's in verse 10. So notice verse 10 is still talking about verse 9. So let me start with verse 9 again. Is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So that ties this verse to the previous verse. So that Paul is still praying for this growing love. Paul is still praying for this knowledgeable love. Paul is still praying for this discerning love, that this love would lead them somewhere so that you may approve what is excellent. And you know the New Testament was written in Greek, so I'm going to have to do some Greek words here for a minute. So the Greek word that's translated here as approve is not a thumbs up, so that you give a thumbs up to what is excellent, though it's maybe a little sense of that, but not quite that. It's the idea of having proofs, that you may have proofs, you may have, um, you may examine something's genuineness. Right? So that you may examine the genuineness and be certain of the genuineness of what is excellent. That's how the verse ends, or the middle of the verse there, what is excellent. Love that gives you a course toward approving, toward examining and, and, uh, uh, the genuineness of this excellent, a course to what is uh, excellent or superior. That idea of excellent is superior. This must be love, then, that is a superior love to the stuff in the world. So that you would have this love more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you will be able to show the genuineness of this excellence, of the excellent, what is excellent in regard to this love. This love is to be superior to the stuff out there. The love out there, there's lots of affection and love out there. I hope you're picking up what I'm saying, right? There's lots of love going on in places out there. But it's not always good stuff. In fact, a lot of times it's not good stuff. How loving is it for a mother to take her daughter to go get hormone-suppressing medicines because she feels like she's actually a boy? 
and all that happens with that. That's not loving, right? That's damaging. I'm surprised more mothers haven't started rising up and revolting against the medical community and the social workers and the psychologists who are promoting this stuff. I'm expecting it to happen any day, but it hasn't. That's the love out there. But the love in here is to be superior to that love out there. That's how Paul's putting this. In fact, this superior form of love should, should it show itself, should show itself, he says, pure and blameless. In fact, it's pure and blameless in the here and now because it has a view to the there and then. Notice how he ends that verse, for the day of Christ. It's, a, it's pure and blameless in the here and now because it has a view to the there and then for the day of Christ. There and then, we will experience love like we've never known. We will experience love like we've never known. Can you imagine what it would be like to have love where there's no manipulation involved? Where nobody's playing word games? Where nobody's you know, insinuating passively, aggressively, whatever? It's real, genuine love without any faults or sin. We will finally experience love like we've never known, and that love there and then, the day of Christ, has its hooks in us in the here and now, and it's already drawing us in that direction. So what we do now in the here and now has a view to the there and then. Does that all make sense? Hopefully good. Great. So the grace of God is already at work in us, that gives birth to this kind of love as it moves forward. Paul said so back up in verse 6. In verse 6 he says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. It's already begun. The there and then love has already begun in the here and now. So then, Paul's prayer maps out the lines, the lines of knowing and discerning love, but he goes on to the conclusion, and that's verse 11. So let me read again verse 9, 10, and then 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. And so this knowing, discerning love is a knowing, discerning love that leads us along superior lines, leads us in the course of a loving, of loving excellence that's pure and blameless, and it brings, brings us to the conclusion, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. I'm thinking about this morning's sermon, it fills in here. If we really have Christ, if we really are united to Christ, then He really has us. If we're grafted into Him, or as Paul, and as Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 10, if we're really being, then we are really being filled, filled in Him. And that is what Paul's kind of referring to here. Now it's possible, let me little Greek grammar alert here. The fruits of right, the fruit of righteousness. It's possible that that means the fruit that is righteousness, the fruit of love that is righteousness. That would actually be go along with the Greek grammar, or it could be what you'd probably suspect, and it's the fruit that springs out of dikaiosune, righteousness. Either way, 
as Jesus has put us on God's good side, declared, thus we've been declared righteous, justified. As Jesus has put us on God's good side, remember He did it despite what we deserve. And that recognition should cultivate in us a humble love, a humble desire to show the same or similar grace to others, even specifically to other believers, um, other brothers and sisters that we may find ourselves at odds with. That's why he will end and come to chapter 4, verse 2. Yodius and Tike, these sisters, they're both justified. They both were declared right with God through Jesus Christ in the exact same way. Neither one of them deserved it. And so please, come to agree with one another. So that recognition should cultivate in us a humble love, a humble desire to show a similar grace to others, even to other believers that we find ourselves at odds with. My friends, it's prayers like this one that tell me that we have little to no idea what justification is all about if we don't love brothers and sisters, fellow justified ones. We have no idea what justification is all about if we don't love fellow justified ones. Again, it's not just about the purity of the church, but it's the purity and the peace of the church. It's also not about the peace of the church to the exclusion of purity. It's the purity and the peace of the church. Or as God Himself directed us in Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 19, which we read clear back weeks ago when we were looking at Romans 15. In Zechariah 8, 19, God directs us. He says, therefore, Love, truth, and peace. It's a both and. It's not either or. And notice how this prayer ends. This kind of love that he's praying for is to the glory and the praise of God. And so, my friends, as we learn from Paul about prayer, the central idea so far is, has to do with learning to love. As you look at Philippians 1 especially, learning to love and learning to love well. And so I ask, who do you know that needs you to pray for them that they, they love increasingly, more and more, so that they love others knowingly or knowledgeably, that they love with proper boundary discernment in place? What congregation or presbytery or denomination do you know? that needs prayers for them to love in quality ways, in ways that are superior to society's fluff and flirtatiousness. What, who needs that kind of prayer? Just fill in the blanks, right? But further, as we walk through this prayer, how does it strike you? Do you think about Paul's prayer? Are there areas, areas where you need to grow in knowledge-filled love? Is there areas where you need to grow in discerning, boundary-marked love? Pure and blameless love? Love that is filled with the fruit of righteousness? I mean, thinking through this prayer all week long, as I prepared for today, and praying through it many times, it's brought me to think about relationships and situations through the past that I need myself to work on. But also it exposed some of my own inclinations. When we'll go into it, I don't want to get into the morass and the boggy details, okay? But it has, it does, as you work through it and actually spend time on it and pray this and realize, oh, 
hmm, here's where I've fallen short. That's exactly part of what it's for, for us. It's actually brought me to confess some of my own faults in a few areas. Finally, my friends, this prayer has everything to do with verse 8. has everything to do with the affections of Christ for us. I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. This is what the affections of Christ Jesus look like. Right? This, this love that is knowledgeable. He knows us. This love that is discerning. He knows the limits of that. You know, what's proper with that. It is, it's love that he has, affection he has for us, that is, uh, uh, that is uh, genuine and superior, pure and blameless, and filled with the fruit of righteousness. So, dear friends, learn to pray with Paul. Philippians 1, verses 3 through 11 is a good place to start. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you and we pray. We pray with the Apostle Paul. We pray for ourselves. We pray for our church. We pray for Hills and Plains Presbytery. We pray for the Presbyterian Church in America. May our love abound more and more with knowledge, knowing one another, and actually being involved with each other. And with all discernment knowing the moral way to show and exhibit this love and knowing its limits, so that we may show the genuineness of that superior, that excellent love, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. We look forward to that day when we will finally know love like we've never known love before. We're grateful that because of your love for us, we have hope for that day. And so may we be filled, may our love be filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ. And may it all be to your glory and praise, O God. In Jesus' name.